If you fell ill at the Ohio State Reformatory, you would have to make your way over to the second hospital located in the East Wing. There, you would be greeted by a behemoth of a man, a six-foot-eight, 350-pound guard known as Mr. Saltz. That wasn't his real name, but rather a name he had earned due to his cruel and unusual way of punishing inmates who he felt were feigning illness to get out of work. He would make the inmate stand before him and drink a tall glass of water mixed with Epsom salt. The inmates would have no choice but to drink the salty solution. Upon draining the glass, Mr. Saltz would look at the prisoner and say, come back when you're really sick. And with a laugh, he would send them back to their cell to wait for the hot flushes, sweating, nausea, and eventual vomiting to overcome them. Mr. Saltz was quite a presence at the Ohio State Reformatory. But even though he's been dead for countless years, he's still manning the desk of the second hospital. He no longer gives out glasses of salt water, but rather a violent push here and a hair pull there. And you know it's him because he appears before people as a giant black mass of shadow and malice. Welcome to episode 23 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. Mansfield, Ohio is lovingly known as the fun center of Ohio. But amidst carousels, music venues, theaters, and comedy clubs is a gargantuous Victorian Gothic come Romanesque castle-like building known as the Ohio State Reformatory. The prison no longer houses inmates, but is now home to a host of architectural, movie, and ghost tours. The prison is such a paranormal hotspot, the historical reformatory even has its own lead paranormal investigator on staff. And we were lucky enough to speak with him. Greg joins us today from inside the East Admin Building of the Ohio State Reformatory. Now everyone better be on their best behavior, for although the prison is no longer active, plenty of its former staff and inmates still are. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch. Episode 23, The Ohio State Reformatory. All right, uh, the Ohio State Reformatory, also known as the Mansfield Reformatory, uh, was constructed between 1886 and 1896. 
that included the main administration portion, which is the front of the building and the west cell block. When the first 150 inmates came in 1896, they were per, put to work building the east cell block. And that was completed about 1910. The Ohio State Reformatory began as an intermediate prison for first-time nonviolent offenders. These were young men, ages 15 to 30, who came to the prison to be reformed before they rejoined society. And at that time, they had to do three things. They had to go to church, they had to learn a trade, and they had to go to school to earn their GED. At that time, when it first opened, they used to spend maybe about eight hours a night in their cells sleeping, and uh, the other 16 hours, they were doing those three things. This original idea of reform worked. The prison had low recidivism rates, and many young men went on to lead successful, crime-free lives. As the years progressed, it slowly turned into a maximum security prison. And by the early 1970s, it was a full-blown maximum security prison. By the time the facility was a maximum security prison in the 1970s, prisoners were allowed to choose how they spent their day. They didn't have to go to work, church, or school. And some prisoners were spending as much as 20 to 23 hours a day in their cell. And the cells aren't very big. Um, it's a lot different than it is today. Uh, where a lot, of, a lot of the prisons have pods. Uh, the cells that they were in would be about eight feet deep by about five and a half feet wide. And depending on overcrowding conditions, there could be you know, three to a cell. By the time the prison closed on December 31st, 1990, the conditions were so deplorable, it was obvious that this facility could not continue. It's a mammoth building, impossible to properly heat in the winter. There are even stories of the water inside of the toilets freezing due to the frigid conditions. And it was not any better in the summer months either. Uh, in, in the summertime, it would get so hot, especially so, some of the tiers up on the fourth, fifth, and sixth levels. Uh, imagine uh, the East cell block alone. It's the largest freestanding cell block in the world. Um, it's six tiers high, and on each tier, there's about 100 cells. There's 50 on the north and about 50 on the south side. So there's about 600 cells over there. And it's all open, except the walls that surround the, the, the block. So it's kind of hard to heat and cool. Uh, just because it is so large. And the inmates that would be up on the top tiers in the summer uh, is probably sweltering. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, it was like 85, 90 degrees here outside. And inside, it's actually hotter. The inmates filed a petition with the state of Ohio claiming that being an inmate here was cruel and inhuman punishment. Uh, the state eventually agreed and billed them um, some nice prisons directly behind the Ohio State Reformatory. And the last inmates left December 31st, 1990. The prison sat empty for several years, allowing rot, decay, and neglect to take a foothold. However, this amazing building was saved and brought back onto the map when it was used as the set for the infamous Shawshank Redemption. 
that pretty much saved the building. Uh, after the the movie was done filming, the state of Ohio started removing all the support buildings on the back and the wall. Those are all those buildings that, that you saw in the movie. Uh, but citizens of Mansfield, um, they formed the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society. And to make a long story short, uh, they purchased uh, the prison from the state at an auction for $1. So, and then uh, they got to work restoring it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, they're slowly renovating it. Um, and it's, I mean, it, it's beautiful inside. Uh, the Ohio State Reformatory is about 250,000 square feet. You know, if you look at a photo of it, the main administration portion looks like a castle. And in fact, the architect, Levi Schofield, um, he got his inspiration from castles over in Europe. So when you're coming down Reformatory Drive, it looks like you're approaching a large castle which is really awe-inspiring the first time you see it. The building was so awe-inspiring, in fact, that on Greg's first visit to the prison as a tourist, he told his wife there and then that as soon as he retired from the police force, he was going to spend his days volunteering at the prison. And that is exactly what he's doing now. Uh, some areas, I, you know, still um, haven't been worked on, like the area I'm in now. I'm in the third floor East Admin. Uh, you know, the walls are peeling, uh, you know, but, but it's got character up here. And this is one of the most haunted areas inside the whole prison. There are a lot of stuff that happens in this building. Um, and originally, this area was used as guest bedrooms uh, back in the early 1900s when, you know, business men, VIPs, dignitaries, when they would come and visit the prison, they would come by horseback, horse and buggy and the train. So it's not like they could turn around after their business was done and take that long trek home because it would take them a long time to get there. So they used to just spend the night here. And uh, East Admin, third floor, is where the guest bedrooms were. Uh, when the roads got better and the cars got faster, they no longer needed these as guest bedrooms, so they turned it into storage. And not too many people know this, but not only was it a prison, but it was also a home. Superintendents, assistant superintendents, chaplains, and their families live here on the property. So they had bedrooms here, living rooms, uh, dining rooms. I mean, it was like a regular home, except your backyard was uh, a prison. And some of the residents who lived on the third floor East Admin are still residing there to this day. Every once in a while, people will smell a uh, cherry pipe tobacco, uh, a very sweet smelling uh, uh, aroma. And other people will smell roses. Uh, and uh, both of those are attributed to uh, a husband and wife who lived here. Uh, one of the superintendent's name uh, was Art Gladkey. Uh, he was superintendent from 1935 to 1959. Uh, 1959, he was working in his office in West Edmond on the first floor when he suffered a fatal heart attack. Uh, Art used to smoke a pipe with cherry tobacco. So there's a lot of people that, you know, think he's still here, and I have smelled it. 
It's uh, you, you'll be in an area all of a sudden it just comes and it just surrounds you. And you're like, whoa, you know, art must be here. And then it'll slowly d- disappear. Art's wife, Helen, was known for her rose-scented perfume. And on November 5th, 1950, Helen suffered a tragic accident inside the prison. She was in her bedroom, reaching for a box on the top shelf of the closet. What she didn't know was her husband's handgun was next to the box. When she dislodged the box, the gun fell to the floor, discharged, and a bullet struck her in the lung. Uh, She did not die here, but she uh, did die two days later of complications from pneumonia. But people will smell the roses. Um, First time there again, first time that we were here, we were walking down the hall, uh, having the tour. All of a sudden, all of us just got engulfed in this uh, scent of roses. And it lingered for a little while. And then, just like everything else, it slowly disappeared. And the guard, uh, our guide was like, no, Helen was here. However, the majority of the paranormal activity that goes on at the Ohio State Reformatory Prison is not half this pleasant or benign. Another time, uh, me and an investigator, uh, this was a really crazy night. Uh, He and I were originally investigating over on the West Admin on the third floor, which is almost like a mirror image of East Admin. And we were sitting over there investigating and we, we were hearing a lot of disembodied voices. It was one of those things where I would be like, did you hear that? And he'd be like, that man's voice? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, so we were having a lot of activity over there. And my wife and some other team members were over on the east side, and they were having a lot of activity, kind of like the same thing, disembodied voices, weird noises coming from some of these rooms, uh, just a lot, a lot of weird stuff. So we decided to switch to see if, we would experience the same things. And uh, he and I were sitting over here on the stage and uh, we got this loud crash coming from the middle of the room. I mean, it, it, it actually startled us. So this is just the crash by itself. Uh, the original the recording, uh, there's some cussing in it so because it scared the, the living daylights out of it. So th- this is the crash isolated. Now, that audio doesn't do it justice because it was so loud coming right from the center of the room. And uh, when we heard it, we, you know, we said a couple of choice words and... Uh, we tried to find what, what, what it was that it fell. Originally, we both thought it sounded like light bulbs falling from the ceiling, shattering. So we're searching this whole area. Uh, there's probably about six bedrooms up here, uh, some closets. We searched everything, nothing on the floor, nothing. And uh, the, But the thing is, it was so loud, it was coming right from the center of the room. Uh, when I let my wife listen to it, she has heard that same sound, but she was down on the second floor. And sometimes people will hear like chains falling up on the third floor. Also on the third floor, in between the East and the West Admin, there is a particularly strange room called the Chair Room. 
It's a large room with peeling paint, old wooden floors, and not a window in sight. No one really knows what its original purpose was. It's thought that perhaps it could have been a storage room, or perhaps a room that guards could have slept in whilst on call. Or maybe it was used for something much more sinister. And then there's others that think maybe not so nice things happen there. Uh, because, I mean, who knows what went on, you know, in the early days of the, the prison. You know, I'm sure just like any prison, there was probably some brutality perpetrated by guards on, on the, the inmates. That, that would be my guess. Uh, but this room lately, uh, we've been having, uh, for lack of a better term, people attacked. And when I say attacked, I, I mostly mean like scratched or bruised. And when, whenever we have guests here that are going to be doing an overnight investigation, I always tell them that, you know, please don't provoke or challenge them because you are dealing with, uh, you know, former inmates here. Uh, and, and I do believe that uh, when you pass on that, if you were a, let's say, a criminal, you know, not very nice guy in real life, that's how you're going to be in the afterlife. And that's just my, my personal opinion. Uh, everybody's got, got their theories, but uh, I believe that. And, uh, you know, bad things happen in the, in the prison here. So I think they, they continue to do bad, bad things. But uh, it doesn't matter in the chair room. You can be as nice as can be and uh, bad things can happen to you. Even visitors who are not doing investigations or ghost tours have fallen victim to the attacks, leaving the room with deep scratches and fresh bruises. In addition to these harrowing reports, it is said that if you move the chair from the center of the room, it will return itself back to its original position. So there's, you know, there have been a lot of deaths here, a lot of suicides, uh, Murders, you know, inmate on inmate, and inmate on guard, and possibly even guard on inmate. So, you know, this is a, it's a very sad and tragic place. You know, there, there's, uh, there were never any executions here in the prison, but we did have a lot of suicides. The most famous of which was James Lockhart. James was housed in cell number 13, and in 1960, when he was just 22 years old, he was denied parole by the judge in charge of his case. He became so depressed and consumed with grief that one afternoon, he stole some turpentine from the prisoner furniture workshop and retreated to his cell. He then proceeded to douse himself in the solvent and then set himself on fire. You can still visit James's cell today. It wasn't just inmates who came to tragic ends within the walls of the Ohio State Reformatory. There is at least one known death of an officer on duty. And in death, he appears to be doing exactly what he did in life, patrolling the halls of solitary confinement. So uh, let's head over into solitary confinement. Now that that area, which is in our west diagonal, there's three areas to solitary confinement. Uh, there is second floor, then there's the main floor, which is the ground floor, and then you have the sub-basement. Sub-basement was the original solitary, which was basically just a hole in the ground. When a prisoner was sent to solitary confinement, or the hole, 
They would have to crawl down into the hole in the ground and the guards would shut the lid above them. Once their time had been served, the lid would be opened and the prisoner would crawl out from the ground. The story goes is that there were two inmates down there and there was a heavy rainstorm that flooded that hole. And unfortunately, they drowned. So after that, they filled that hole in and they no longer used that anymore. Uh, but uh, there are stuff that goes on in solitary. Um, you talk about, some, you know, specific uh, spirits or entities that, that haunt a location. Uh, there are a couple there that, that we know of. One being Frank Hanger. Now, Frank Hanger was a guard um, and he was actually murdered in 1932. He was on the first floor in solitary. He was making his rounds. What Frank didn't know was that an inmate had escaped and was waiting for him with a three-foot-long iron pipe. While Frank was patrolling, the inmate struck him on the head with the pipe, sending Frank to the floor with an almighty crash. Once on the ground, the inmate hit Frank again over the head. While Frank lay dying, blood streaming from his crashed-in skull, the inmate stole his keys and released all the other inmates. Uh, they did not get far because another inmate sounded the alarm. So I don't even think they got out of solitary. But Frank did die from his injuries. And there's a lot of people that think Frank is still there. Uh, even though there were other murders, uh, the, there was one incident where two inmates were in one of the solitary cells and the one inmate killed the other and stuffed his body underneath the bunk. But we think that Frank Hanger is still there because what happens, people will hear heavy footsteps walking around. Now, inmates wore soft-soled shoes, guards wore boots, and guests and investigators have heard heavy boots walking up on the second floor. Uh, so that's fairly common. People have seen large shadow figures in there uh, that uh, I believe can be attributed to Frank. People would, you know, get a lot of AVPs. Um, I think I experienced the fight between those two inmates. I was down there by myself one, one evening uh, and I, I was sitting in a chair uh, at the entrance to solitary. There was nobody else in there. and. I heard what sounded like a large fight going on down at the end of the, the, the hall. I mean, it, it sounded like several inmates fighting. I mean, there were no voices, but there was a lot of scuffling, a lot of, you know, groaning and moaning. And uh, it, it was loud. I just sat there and listened to it until it went away. I mean, it didn't do any good going, you know, investigating down there because I knew there was nobody there. Although solitary confinement is a hotbed of paranormal activity, the most active location in the prison is the West Attic, which is odd because that's exactly what it is, an attic used for storage and ductwork. At least, that's what it was originally designed to do. And when people go up there, they are like, why is this so active? And we tell them that uh, they used to house inmates up there. Back in 1930, there was a major fire at the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, about 322 inmates perished in that fire. Well, they had to find 
prisons within the Ohio prison system to place the other inmates while they rebuilt the penitentiary. And some 200 and some came here. Now, in 1930, this was still a intermediate prison for first-time nonviolent offenders. These guys that were coming here were your murderers, your rapists, your felons, your lifers, your worst of the worst. And in the West Attic, there's no cells. So what they did is just lined cots up and down the walls, and they would shut the door and lock it. Guards can't really patrol there. You know, because uh, the guards would be killed. So there was a lot of violence and violent acts and probably some murders that have occurred up there. While in the West Attic, people hear a lot of disembodied voices, shouting, screams, and movement. Footsteps walk towards visitors in an ominous fashion, disappearing as they reach you. Stuff will be thrown at you. Women will be touched inappropriately up there. They will get ice cold. Um, I was surrounded by this ice coldness. You, you could feel it walking around me. And it, it was weird because at the same time, uh, on my keychain, I had this glow-in-the-dark ghost. And uh, I, I had some guests up there, and they kept seeing the ghost disappear. You know, it would disappear and then reappear and then disappear, and then reappear. And at the same time that was happening, I felt something cold walking around me. You could feel the cold moving around you. And they asked me, they said, are you waving your hands in front of you, all your body? And I'm like, no. And they turn on the lights, and my hands are in my pocket, and they're like, OMG, <laughs> you know, because uh, this was their first time investigating. And they're like, your ghost keeps disappearing. And I'm like, yeah, I feel like there's something walking around me. So, you know, people do feel presence up there. Um, people will see shadow figures. You, you can see it. Even though it's dark, uh, the entrance doorway into the chapel still has ambient light. So you can see figures coming in or, or crossing the, um, the doorway. But the strangest thing about the West Attic is that there is a phenomenon that occurs up there that is so unbelievable that Greg did not believe it until he saw it himself. But the most prevalent thing that happens up there are these balls of light that people see with their naked eyes. You know, people, can they, they are described as like, you know, they can be pinpoints or they can be huge, bright lights. And I'm one of these people that never saw the lights either. I uh, I thought everybody was crazy until one night when I did see it. There were nine of us. We were all in the back, and they're like, here comes this ball of light. And I'm like, no, there's no ball of light coming in. You, you, you guys are seeing things. And I'm like, here's another one. Here's another one. And I can't see any of these. So I move halfway up. So I'm in the mid middle of the attic by myself, and they're way down at the end. And I'm like, okay, now when you guys see a light, please let me know, because I should be able to see them now. And they're like, here comes one now. Nope, there's no lights coming in. You guys are crazy. You guys are seeing things. Uh, so that went on for a while. I couldn't see the lights. Uh, but this ne next light, yeah, I saw it. And I do believe the lights now. So when everybody tells me that they saw the lights, I do believe them. We describe this light as a like a meteor or a shooting star comet. I mean, it was bright. It had a tail behind it. It come flying in there. I had a piece of paranormal equipment on the ductwork next to me. It hit that 
and exploded in this golden glow of light. And immediately it got ice cold over there. Yeah, that was amazing. It was almost like you can't see the lights. We'll make sure you see this light now. When paranormal teams do investigations in the prison, they are bound to capture a wide array of evidence. But what's most fascinating to me is when people have totally unexpected experiences, when they witness something that makes them question their own paradigms. Now, I do have one one cool story here in the East uh, cell block that just happened this past August. My wife was leading a tour. She was um, a guide on one of the ghost walks. So these ghost walks are two-hour guided tours at night in the prison. Uh, You have one guide, you have your guests, and then you have at least one pusher. The pusher follows the group to make sure nobody wanders off. So they're up in the chapel, and she lets everybody know that, you know, we're up on the sixth tier, we're going to be dropping down to the fourth tier, and we're going to stop there, and we'll talk about the East Cell Block. So in this area, you have to go single file. You have to follow the person in front front of you. So she's going down. Everybody's following her. She's up on the sixth tier. She goes down to the fifth tier. And then she goes from the fifth tier down to the fourth tier. Only four people follow her. The other six people follow somebody else. So they go down from the sixth tier to the fifth tier. And they start going toward the fifth tier on the north side. And the pusher is like, where are you guys going? You guys are going the wrong way. And they're like, no, we're not. You know, we're following the the group. And he's like, you guys are going the wrong way. You know, he's getting he's getting worried because, you know, the tour guide is like, where where's the rest of my people? So he's like, okay, come back. You're going the wrong way. And they are adamant. They're not going the wrong way because they are following the group. Well, when he gets up to where they're at, they are all, all standing there in amazement and shock. And they were like, where did he go? Where did he go? And the push was like, what do you mean, where did he go? And they all said, we were following this guy. He led us here to the fifth tier. And there's a locked gate on the fifth tier to prevent people from going down that way. And they said, he went through the gate and disappeared. And they were like, all like in shock. And and I do believe them because they were all from different families. It's not like six people from one family saying, hey, let's, you know, let, you know let, let's uh, fake them out. And they all described them the same. They said that he was an older white gentleman with messy white hair, black shirt, wearing no mask. And at that time, everybody had to wear masks. So, and <laughs> they were amazed. They said, He looked real. He looked just like you and me. And he walked straight through that gate and disappeared. Greg doesn't know who that man could have been. But the possibilities are endless. The Ohio State Reformatory housed over 154,000 inmates during its time in operation. It saw at least 215 inmate deaths the majority of which were tragic and violent, and the death of at least one guard. On top of all the deaths and violence, the prison was a cruel place to serve time. 
On July 15, 1898, the New York Times reported that 45 prisoners were hung by their thumbs after they went on strike for not having tobacco one day. And that's just the brutality that we know about. As Greg said, there will have been countless violent crimes that were committed within the prison that we will never know about. But the building still houses all of that violent residual energy. People have never been here before, you know, come, come during the day to uh, tour the, the prison during the day uh, uh, for the history and the movies and then come and do it overnight. But visitors beware. For no matter how scared you are, there is no early release from this prison any longer. Do you have a spooky story you'd like to share? I'd love to hear it. Drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And come and follow us for additional content on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and Merry Meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.